0: Hello, my name is Tupiwama 7, this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 54. First, some headlines. The mortgage payment holiday previously spoken of in Episode 45 has now been extended until the 31st of October. So has the lender ban on repossession of property. We have also been provided with more information on the employer payments in the furlough scheme, previously spoken of in Episode 52. From September, employers will be expected to pay 10% of their employees' salaries, rising to 20% in October, which is when the scheme will end. In a follow-up from episode 42 where we spoke of Fly B, chief executives of four aviation trade groups have written a letter to the chancellor requesting a six-month suspension of the Air Passenger Duty, or APD. In law firm responses, Norton Rolls Fulbright is planning a phased and gradual reopening of offices But managing partner of Europe, Middle East, and Africa, Peter Scott, has said there is, quote, no business imperative to get people back into the office, end quote, as 80% of staff reported that they have had good experiences working from home. In hospitality, as lockdowns gradually ease, the British Beer and Pub Association has said that if pubs are told to reopen while the two-meter social distancing rule remains in place, only one in five pubs will be able to. And finally... French car maker Renault has announced plans to cut 14,600 jobs to save 1.8 billion pounds as part of its restructuring plan. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. This week's format is the traditional three longer reads. The first of the longer reads that national firm Slater & Gordon Lawyers has announced that its London office will close in September with the 200 people working in that office expected to permanently work from home. Though the firm had been embracing the future of work for some time now, the government mandated lockdown across industries for the past few months, plus the firm's London office's lease expiring in September led to this decision. London staff will be provided with screens and office equipment if needed, and David Whitmore, chief exec, has said the plan is to find a smaller office in London to host meetings, with the rest of the work done remotely whitmore had more to save the decision stating quote we are a technology-driven business and we always knew that having most of our staff working remotely was in our future it improves the well-being and work-life balance of our staff and provides flexibility to our customers we have been able to accelerate these plans over the last few months quote. now if you follow the podcast on instagram you'll remember a poll that was posted this past week about the future of work to gauge whether or not you personally see working from home as your ideal future work environment. Only 26% of you voted in favor of permanently working from home as opposed to permanently working in office. Truth be told, I was a little surprised by this result, but I think it provides us with a little more listener insight into the story. 74% of you still see the need for an office. I'm sure if there were more dynamic polls available, in that 74%, we would have seen a majority preferring the office with the added option of working from home for a few days a week. I think even Slater and Gordon appreciate the need for an office too, just not in the same context as they have traditionally. They could be the first of many firms to see less of a need for expensive office leases after this pandemic. Granted, they have nine other offices in the UK, all under review due to finish in September. These other offices may remain open as their leases expire at a later date. But this is yet another story surrounding the future of work. We detail the new normal most recently when we covered the O2 Virgin Media merger in episode 51, involving five firms working across three cities with lawyers working remotely. It's possible that even this deal being done under those circumstances could have larger firms wondering what the long-term future of their own office models will be. Come to think of it, we don't actually need to speculate here. In the headlines of episode 52, we mention Evershut Sutherland stating that they have shifted their long-term strategy from acquiring new office spaces to investing in technology, which could change the way their offices are used after the pandemic. Even more recent than that, we mentioned Norton Rolls Fulbright in the headlines of this episode, and their EMEA managing partner Peter Scott has said, This six-to-eight-week period has very much demonstrated to us that a more agile work arrangement is not only possible by exception, but it is entirely workable in practice. That agile work arrangement is, of course, less of a reliance on being in the office. So, this story shows us the ways the lockdown not only resulted in law firms finding a way to survive during it, but potentially thrive afterwards. On the other side of the coin, this story also allows us to revisit the last episode's story of MW solicitors and their pre-pack administration. We spoke of how high leverage and lockup contributed to the firm's financial troubles. Though remote working does not directly resolve either of these issues, it removes significant overheads such as rent and utilities for large and expensive office spaces, which could create a more accommodating environment for leverage and lockup. Therefore, other national and high street firms may find that remote working could be a long-term solution. Finally, Whitmore said something that I think gives us a great angle to continue discussing the story, and that is, quote, We don't want our staff tethered to desks and offices. We trust them to work hard to get the best outcomes for our clients wherever they are, quote. That last sentence actually brings up a concern that I assume to be common for a number of firms in general, but especially during lockdown. It's the issue of utilization. New term again, what is utilization? It is the metric used to measure a lawyer's activity. In basic English, For the hours a lawyer has available in a workday or work week, how many hours have they managed to bill? It's usually presented as a percentage, and as a way to gauge not only how productive a specific fee earner is, but also how profitable and efficient an entire practice area is. Whitmore's quote seems to find that utilization for lawyers has not dropped from not being in the office, and he does not expect it to, inspiring a long-term shift away from said office. However, as firms do not tend to publish how productive their lawyers have been throughout the year, that's usually kept internal, that conclusion is simply conjecture. But I don't think Slater and Gordon would have announced remote working in the long term had utilization significantly dropped. So, this is an interesting story that allows us to consider the future of work through the lens of law firms. It has also allowed us to learn a new term. This is not to say that offices will be gone tomorrow. I don't mean to startle 74% of you. Some firms that require work to be done in large teams may find that having all lawyers at arm's reach of each other increases the aforementioned utilization and therefore increases productivity. Furthermore, offices in their locations also contribute at times to a firm's stature and reputation, and that may not go away for a little while longer. But Slater and Gordon's announcement does show that firms no longer need to feel, as Whitmore said, quote, tethered to desks and offices, end quote, as I'm sure other firms have observed over this lockdown. To close, some questions for you. Do you think remote working for law firms will catch on as a trend? Do you think it helps or hinders work-life balance? Would it affect appeal to clients? And to put you on the spot once again, what would you prefer? Credit for this story goes to John Hyde, Luke Barr, and James Weber. In the second longer read, EasyJet has admitted that a, quote, highly sophisticated cyber attack, end quote, has affected about 9 million customers. Email addresses and itineraries were stolen, and for 2,208 customers, credit and debit card information was accessed. The UK's Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO, was informed. But when they were is a little unclear, and that's rather important. This is because the GDPR requires notification of a data breach to the ICO within 72 hours, quote, unless it does not pose a risk to people's rights and freedoms, end quote, according to an ICO spokesperson. A company electing to not report a data breach must keep its own record and be ready to explain why. A company can be fined up to 4% of its global turnover for mishandling customer data And failure to comply with the gdpr for the purposes of telling this story we'll give easyjet the benefit of the doubt but since the ico is investigating the breach the outcome of that investigation will tell us whether easyjet complied with the gdpr according to easyjet part of the delay in informing affected customers was as a result of how sophisticated the attack was the credit and debit card victims were only informed in april and the 9 million customers whose email addresses and itineraries were stolen were only informed by the 26th of May for a breach that occurred in January. Now, we've already covered a data breach in episode 35 when TravelX was hacked, and much of the analysis will be the same. However, for EasyJet, we have recent precedent to look at considering that British Airways was fined a record 183 million pounds over their breach in 2018, and compensatory payouts to customers could result in British Airways paying up to £3 billion for that breach. And that was for mishandling half a million customers' data, compared to the 9 million here. Speaking of, group litigation firm PGMBM has already brought an £18 billion claim against EasyJet for this breach, demanding EasyJet pay £2,000 for each affected customer. With that said, let's talk about it. In a way, this must feel like a quadruple whammy for EasyJet. First, like every company in aviation, they are facing unprecedented losses and slowdown of business. Second, their activist shareholder and founder has been quite vocal about his displeasure towards the directors, as we covered in recent episodes. Third is, of course, the damage to their reputation as a result of this breach, which could exacerbate any issues they are already facing as they seek to rebound after lockdowns fourth is the financial impact the breach will have, not only with ICO fines if any GDPR breaches are found, but of course the potential £18 billion class action lawsuit. So let's hone in on that data breach. This story shows us that companies victim to data breaches find themselves trying to strike a balance between disclosure and discretion. That's where data protection teams and law firms make their bread and butter. On one side, companies have direct obligations as a result of the GDPR to disclose data breaches, and on the other side, are trying to prevent PR nightmares and permanent reputational damage. The lawyers in those data protection teams advise their clients on the best course of action throughout this activity. Now, it's not for me to judge whether EasyJet got it right in this instance, but even the info alert, for which I have provided a link, shows a chronology which details a company with an interest in striking that balance. However, because of the scale of the attack, EasyJet may still be found to have mishandled customer data, resulting in monetary losses that could gravely damage the company. This reminds us of how high-stakes data protection is for companies. This story also highlights that data protection applies to multiple practices, ranging from data protection, to regulatory, to litigation. As our reliance on tech grows, data security will grow in importance and significance, and law firms with better track records and data protection for themselves and clients will thrive. Credit for this story goes to Jane Wakefield, Kevin Peachy, Amar Mehta, and EasyJet. In the final read, a Twitter feud in the U.S. has actually led to regulation we used to discuss quite a bit on this podcast. I hope you don't mind me being a little off the cuff with detailing how we got here. Long story short, U.S. President Trump tweeted a tweet. Twitter, for the first time ever, put a fact check notice on that tweet, resulting in the president signing an executive order that significantly changes the liability of social media companies in relation to what is on their sites. As it stood, there was Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act which gave U.S. tech companies immunity from liability for most content on their sites as they had been considered platforms and not publishers. An example of publishers are news agencies and their websites, and they are liable for what they publish. However, Twitter's move to fact-check the president resulted in retaliation, a directive with the intention of compelling social media companies to forego this immunity should they interfere with the content on their sites in the way they did with the president's tweets. The executive order will direct regulators such as the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, to create new laws to curtail this immunity. Though it will probably be legally challenged, until then it is in force, again though, as a directive. It will be up to those bodies to regulate in line with the directive as they see fit. So, let's talk about it. Though this does bring up matters of free speech, the more relevant concerns for the purposes of this podcast is a topic we mention in episodes 1, 4, 7, 17, 18, 19, 33, 35, and in a way, 41. That is the broader matter of regulatory attempts to catch up to tech companies. That was actually a narrative that earlier episodes of the podcast covered quite extensively. In case you aren't interested in listening to those nine episodes, those episodes merely highlight the global trials and tribulations in tech regulation. Episode 18, for example, saw French MPs backing a bill which gave social media companies 24 hours to remove hate crime from their platforms and Facebook giving French judges the identification of those suspected of hate speech. However, episode 33, for example, saw the CJEU decide that Airbnb was not a real estate agency after the French Tourism Association claimed that Airbnb was an estate agency acting without a license. But more specifically for this story, episode 17 discussed an Australian Supreme Court decision that social media companies were not liable for defamatory comments on their site, but commercial entities that had pages on the same social media sites were liable for any such defamatory comments left on their posts. Pointing this story out in contrast to the executive order shows us why this primarily matters. Even at the time of episode 17, I expressed a respectful confusion to that Supreme Court decision, but more importantly, remarked that it would be interesting to see how different jurisdictions approached this matter. This is because varying approaches result in more work for tech companies and their regulatory lawyers. This executive order results in tech companies being liable in the U.S. for something they are not liable for in Australia and even Europe. But over the internet, this presents some problems. In practice, as these social media sites are available in both the U.S. and Australia and Europe, these companies may be advised that it could be easier to follow the more stringent rules across the world. However, that means more costs for those companies, not only in paying their lawyers for advice, but hiring more staff with the task of moderating content. This is more than salary, however, as earlier this month, Facebook agreed to pay a $52 million settlement for the mental toll content moderation took on its staff and to provide those moderators with counseling as they work. This is because a number of moderators reported PTSD as a result of the content they had to manually sift through. Furthermore, if social media sites are regulated more like publishers than platforms, this may actually result in more civil suits stemming from their sites. Though there have been calls for more content moderation, it is worth making my own distinction from a news agency and, say, Twitter. A news agency hires its writers and staff, let's say a few hundred people for a major news agency. Those articles are edited and fact-checked. Statista stated that, as of the first quarter of 2020, Twitter has 152 million active users worldwide and 64 million in the US. If every single user is treated as a writer in the same way a news agency's writer is, one can see that we'd be drawing a potential false equivalence between the two bodies. The latter has quite a bit to lose by being regulated in the same manner as the former. So, in a sentence, Regulatory changes can be expensive. As countries around the world find new ways to regulate tech companies, it will be interesting to see obviously how they react, but also how the way we engage with them and their sites changes. So, question for you is, what is your proposal for regulating tech companies in terms of liability for the content on their site? Platform, publisher, or somewhere in between? And if you'd like to listen to some of those episodes, I'd personally recommend, well, all of them. But if you're short for time, episodes 19, 33, 35, and 41. Credit for this story goes to David Smith, Statista, and Casey Newton. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description, and the podcast Instagram page is at CommawarePod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to contact me there or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week.